I hope you are enjoying this summer series. I am really, really enjoying the Wonder Woman series. I don't know really if everybody is, but I think it's amazing to see week after week what God does through a godly woman. I tell you what, my wife is amazing. She's always told me, honey, you're the head of the home, but I'm the neck that turns the head. You cannot forget that. She is amazingly influential. I mean, honestly, I think a wife... Uh, more than the husband, determines the environment, the feel, the ambiance of the home. And she is a powerful, powerful force in my family. And so I am really enjoying lifting up these ladies from the Old Testament because we're seeing, ladies, I'm going to talk to you for a moment, we're seeing the incredible influence that you can have, not just in a person's life or your family's life, but in even a nation's life. And so I really want to encourage you, listen with ears of encouragement. I want you to be edified, ladies. And it's not just for the ladies. And we're going to learn today uh, lessons that are going to impact men as well. But uh, ladies, I really want you to know we understand how unique you are from men, how God created your femininity for a purpose to bring such beauty and power and strength to this church, to your family, to this community. So let's jump right in. We're going to look at Abigail. I'm going to encourage you to open up. I think it's page 247 if you're using one of those Bibles in that pew. If you're not using that, you're using your own Bible. It's 1 Samuel chapter 25. So let's all get open with our Bibles. Let's get them in front of us. Because I don't know if you've noticed this in your outline... Well, it kind of betrays this. This is not a three or a four point sermon series. This is a narrative approach. We're looking at storytelling and we're letting the Bible unfold in a narrative way. And we want to just flow. We just want to follow the flow throughout the scripture. So we're going to be really not looking at a lot of different points. We're just going to let the Bible, the flow emerge and we're just going to watch it go. We're going to jump in, and we're going to tease out some principles as we go. So I want to ask you a question, and this is really important to everybody in this church. Even if you're younger, I want you to just see if you can contemplate this question for a moment. And I'm going to give you like a pause or, uh, for a few seconds, and I want you to kind of deliberate with it. I want you to kind of think about it, mentally wrestle with it a little bit. You ready? Here we go. Do your question, do, I'm sorry, here it is. Do your circumstances define who you are and what you do? Do your circumstances define who you are and what you do? Well, let me, let me help you do some mental exercises with this. Maybe you have a really difficult job that you do, that you do not like. You really hate it. Maybe you're single and you're increasingly frustrated by being single. Maybe you're in a financial hardship and you're barely making it week to week. Maybe you came out of a life of abuse. Maybe you're in a broken marriage that just hasn't yet severed. Or maybe you're in a life of singleness because your marriage did sever. I mean, come on, I could keep going Probably hundreds of questions. I'm just trying to get to some of the circumstances 
that you might find yourself. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you have no hope for your future. Because wave after wave of difficulty just seems to come your way. Do your circumstances define who you are and what you do? We're going to look at a lady who, quite honestly, not anybody in here would want her marriage. And in fact, I don't know anybody who ever walks down that altar or receives somebody by that altar of marriage who thinks that one day my marriage is going to be miserable. You have romantic bubbles, heart-shaped bubbles in your eyes on the day of your wedding. But this marriage turns sour. So do your circumstances define who you are and what you do? You're about to meet a woman named Abigail who refused to be defined by her circumstances. She rose above them to do great things. Now I want you to look at me for just a moment and then we're going to jump into the narrative flow. Ladies, I really want to speak to you for a moment. I don't think anybody in here, I don't think there's a woman in here who truly understands fully what God can do through you. You are powerful. You're not only beautiful because God has made you exactly the way you look. God has made you exactly who you are. He's given you your personality. Don't ever try to change your personality. But I don't think any of you, and by the way, it's endemic in this society, in our culture, to convince women, A, that the only way they could be worth anything is to dominate men, or B, which is more readily the one, that you will never amount to much because you're not pretty enough, smart enough, or talented enough. I want to let you know right now, you're going to see this in Abigail. You can do amazing things. Why? Because God is the amazing God who wants to do it through you. If you can amen, at least amen that in your soul, and by faith claim it, you want to learn it, watch the potential of what you're going to do to impact this world for God's glory rise. Here we go. 1 Samuel 25, it opens on a supremely sour chord. I cannot even explain to you how horrible the first three words are in that day. Now Samuel died. Light just extinguished in Israel to some degree. Samuel was the greatest and most beloved leader of Israel since Moses and Joshua. He had recently anointed David king of Israel, yet the current king, Saul, was still on the throne. So Saul's being rejected because he disobeyed the Lord. The kingdom was torn from him. God sent Samuel, the judge and the priest, to David to anoint David. Saul knows this. Saul's trying to kill David. He's trying to protect his throne. Samuel served as a restraint, at least to some degree, on Saul. And now he died. Well, David suspects that Saul, who just ceased trying to kill him just recently, just before this chapter, he suspects that Saul is going to renew his murderous efforts. So he travels with his 600 men, and they've got wives, they've got children. This is a pretty big group. He travels with his men to the wilderness of Paran, and then to the region of Maon, below Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is an absolutely beautiful area in Israel. 
Beautiful, fertile, fertile land. And he's there now in verse 2, introduces us to a very wealthy man in the region. He's got a financial portfolio that consisted of 3,000 sheep. Now this is a pretty massive flock. He's got 1,000 goats. This guy has a lot of money. This guy has a lot of holdings. He is very, very wealthy. The Bible is clear with that. You see, when the Bible is this precise in numbering your holdings, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, it's often giving you a clue to the character of the person. This is like the man. Now listen, some of us are like this. This is like the, the guy or the girl who obsessively checks the stock market, who's always looking at your account balances. Money is a huge, huge thing to you. You're constantly thinking about how much you have. You're thinking about how you can increase it. Well, this is this man. Some, sometimes that can be useful for the kingdom of God, but this is not a good thing for this man as we're about to see. He's about to get a massive increase in his financial wealth. It happens to be the annual time for shearing sheep. The Bible gives us that detail because that's when sheep owners are about to take all of the wool from their sheep, 3,000 of them in this case, and get it to market and your payday comes. He's about to get a huge influx of money. All that wool... Thousands of sheep all going to the market. Money is starting to flow. And then all of a sudden we're introduced to his name. Now I want you to see his name. His name is Nabal. It means dolt or fool. Now you got to wonder, right? Parents, would you name your child a name that means fool or dolt? Probably not likely. This is probably his nickname. He earned it because that's the way that he lives. It's an appropriate nickname for him, but look what it says. He was a Calebite. Now, how many of you, when you read this story, and this is a pretty familiar story, when you read this, you sort of kind of skim over Nabal, the Calebite, and you don't really pause to realize, wait a minute, this is, that's a significant little detail. It's actually pretty massive detail. He's got a really excellent family tree, but he's a rotten branch on it. He's so prideful, he's so unapproachable that verse 17 of chapter 25 says that even his servants said of him, he is such a worthless man that no one, one cannot speak to him. So now we're getting a bit of a biographical sketch. We've got a guy whose name, at least nickname, means fool. He comes from a really incredible family tree. I mean, Caleb's one of the two spies that had faith when they spied out the land. He belongs to the tribe of Judah, the tribe through whom Jesus is going to come. But he's a worthless man. Even his servants could not stand him. Now, by the way, if you have a management team and you're the manager, you're the boss, you're the president of the company, you ever really try to find out what do the people think of you that work for you? There's a lot of value in that. Nabal could care less, verse 17. He didn't want to know that, what his servants thought of him. But the narrative continues, and all of a sudden we meet our wonder woman whose name was Abigail. Now her name, remember, Nabal means dolt or fool. Abigail's name, oh, I love this. Is there an Abigail here? Anybody's name, Abby or Abigail? 
I, listen, you probably, some of y'all just need to change your name. Even some of you guys, change your name to Abigail. It's worth it. It means joy of her father. I mean, don't you love that? I'm going to, listen, I'm going home. We're going to have another kid. I'm going to name, I don't even care if it's a guy. Joy of the father. These two, now listen, you got Nabal and you've got Abigail. Beauty and the Beast. It's the original Beauty and the Beast. It really is. Nabal is harsh. He is boorish. He is badly behaved, the text says. I'm quoting. She was discerning and beautiful, the Bible says. Now, I said this a couple weeks ago. I'll kind of pepper this back in every once in a while. The Bible is given to under-exaggeration. We saw this with Rebecca. It's given to under-exaggeration because really the Hebrew language was not given to really be able to um, explore nuances of really exaggerating the language. So we've got a bit of an under-exaggeration here. So when the Bible says, and this is God writing this, God is speaking, moving the human author to write this, when God then moves that author to write that she was discerning and beautiful, listen, you need to ramp that up. You need to amp that up. This is to another magnitude. She is absolutely stunning outside and inside inside. You might be asking, I would be if I were you, in fact I was asking this, how discerning could she be if she marries this guy named Nabal? Well, painfully some of you can identify with what I'm about to tell you. Sometimes marriage, well the people in a marriage change. I see that a lot. Sometimes who you are 15 years into a marriage is not really who you were when you got married. I mean, circumstances pummel us. Sometimes we get bitter. Sometimes we get resentful. Or sometimes wealth comes to us. And that leads us to become self-preoccupied and actually, oddly enough, anxious about losing the wealth. We just turn into different people. But I'm going to tell you that probably the better answer for why she married Nabal is that commonly these were arranged marriages. And arranged marriages were done for financial or political purposes. They weren't really done for, for happiness. She was beautiful. He was wealthy. He's got what he wants. She's going to get some pretty good benefits as well. It's a boon for her father. Definite marrying up for Nabal. Yet Abigail is nothing. Now look at you got to see this. Abigail is nothing but faithful, uncomplaining, and loving to this dolt and foolish man whose servants despise them. But our story takes a serious turn for the worse, and we can see it begin in verse 5. And let's read it for a little bit. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. In other words, here's what I want you to say to him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. That's an extraordinary blessing. Doesn't translate well in English, but in the Hebrew, to the Jewish mind, this is huge. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. 
Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your, to your son, David. Now, David is the future king of Israel. He is living nearby now with 600 of his men, 600 men. They've got wives. They have children. They've been guarding Nabal's sheep and guarding the shepherds. They brought no harm to man or beast. And by the way, you, you need to just jump in the story for a second, okay? Let me, let me sort of help you get dialed in for a moment. Stealing sheep or wild animals killing sheep was rampant. You've, they lost so much of their livestock through people stealing their sheep. I mean, come on, they're out in these wide open ranges and these meadows. It was very common then for bands of robbers or even individual robbers to steal Entire groups of these sheep. And here is David not allowing any of that to happen. In fact, they protect Nabal's sheep. They protect the shepherds. Even the shepherds were sometimes and often hurt or killed by those who were stealing the sheep. There's a lot of money. Money was invested in flocks. They were very agrarian. And it's time for the shearing, it's the time for the payday that I explain, and it's a time for celebration. So David sends these ten men to Nabal, and by the way, this is a customary thing to do. This is like the tip or the gratuity that you would leave your waiter or your waitress. It's just expected, it's a cultural norm that if you are going to protect somebody's sheep or flocks, then they're going to give you a gift when it's payday, when that wool gets to the market when it's shearing time and he asks him for a very humble request for supplies he didn't ask him for enough to feed 600 plus wives and children he said whatever you have at hand it's a very meager request actually and he gives a blessing he pronounces a blessing on Nabal which is to a Jewish mind shalom is a massive way of saying, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask God to increase your life, your health, your family, your holdings. But we learn how Nabal responded in verse 14. Behold, David sent messengers. This is the servants talking to Abigail later. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And Abigail, he railed at them. Now, we might not really appreciate the Hebrew language here. It's translated in the English, railed at them, in the ESV at least. But that's a, listen to this. Railed at them is one word in the Hebrew. Or railed, rather, is one word. It means it was, a, it was a word that described a shrieking bird of prey when it attacks an animal. Very, very vivid. In fact, I'm going to tell you how it's even used in a more human sense. Earlier, Saul's men were absolutely starving. They were hungry. They were famished. And they defeated an army. And the Bible says that they fell on the plunder, which happened to a lot of it be livestock, and they slaughtered the animals, and they ate the animals before they cooked it with the meat still in it. They just gnawed right off the bones of the flesh of the animal. It's kind of like what some of you do when you eat sushi. Incredibly ungodly. <laughs> By the way, Pastor Matthew 
has a sushi fetish. And I only tell you that to tell you how to pray for him. Okay? It is a sick, sick habit. Food was meant to be cooked. But this is the word for them pouncing on those bloody carcasses and eating them. Railed at them as Nabal's saying, he's shrieking. He's pouncing on these servants. And he's saying horrible things about David that we're going to learn in a minute. And making matters worse. Now look in verse 8. Now these little details matter. It's a festival day. It's a feast day. Now you know what's really interesting? And you really should write this in your Bible. It's commanded in the word of God for the Israelites on a feast day to, sh- to share generously with those in need. That's just a command. That goes along with what God said. Here's how you, here's how you celebrate my festivals that I'm giving you. You share generously with those in need. That's why David said with these ten men, it's a feast day. Could you give us whatever you have a hand? But Nabal rejects the request. He insults David. He scornfully ridicules David's anointing to be the future king of Israel. He calls him a rebellious servant that broke away from his master Saul. That's the inference of that. Now, you know what's really interesting? Now, there's a reason the Bible just told us earlier that Nabal was a Calebite. That means he came from the tribe of Judah. A glorious tribe, I told you, through whom Jesus would come. But guess who else belongs to the tribe of Judah? David. So this is a distant relative. I mean, this is amazing. And and, and Nabal knows all of this. This is how he treats family. This is a worthless, foolish man. He calls him the son of Jesse, yet he claims not to know him. And furiously, David mobilizes his army, and he's on his way to kill Nabal and all of his male servants. I mean, he, the, the wrath of David is about to fall on Nabal, and our Wonder Woman catapults into action when she learns of what David's going to do. And we're going to read about it. Look at 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and Five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. You might be wondering, my goodness, what a huge pantry. How did she have all this? Well, it was a festival. It was a feast day. They were celebrating. It was shearing time. This was the food that they were having to party. And she said to her young men, go before me. Behold, I will come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. She gathers together a quantity of food and drink. Really what was rightfully owed to David. She sends it ahead on donkeys. She immediately and then personally follows behind at a slower pace. And look at verse 23. When Abigail saw David. Now I want you to see this. This is what makes her so amazing. She hurried and got down from the donkey And fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Now time out. Look at me, ladies. There might be inside of you right now a little bit of discomfort going, why is she groveling before him? Woman shouldn't be on her knees groveling. She'd be standing up as equals. Listen, this is the king of Israel and Abigail knows it. 
And she has respect and she has honor. And she knows it's within David's power to destroy every single male in her family. She is pleading. She goes on. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. I tell you what, modern psychology would tell you that she's codependent. What do you mean on me alone be your guilt? That's just not right. That's not healthy. Let's kind of tease this apart a little bit. Lots of threads in this. You ready? Remember, this is narrative, so let's follow the story. She wisely goes to David on a donkey. Now, I want you to hear this. This is a brilliant move on her end. Remember, she's full of discretion, full of discernment, full of wisdom, and beautiful to boot. So she goes on a donkey. And that culture... When kings would go to war, they rode a horse. And when they were on missions of peace, they rode donkeys. That's always the way they did it. She rides on a donkey, which is a clear, clear signal to David she's on a peace mission. She explains truthfully that it is woven in her husband's nature to be a fool. Now, ladies, I know this is your favorite part of the story. She doesn't mince words. I'm going to tell you right now, if you, if you got my wife alone, and you said to her, Denise, really, what is Tim like? I'm going to tell you my wife would be very honest. Now, she wouldn't just throw open the closet and tell you all my struggles. But she's not going to elevate me to a platform that you're going to come away going, oh my goodness, he's like number one man in the world. And believe me, that's not happening. She's going to be very honest there's a lot of wisdom in not lying and not flattering and not stretching things. In fact, there's a lot of wisdom in telling the truth. My husband cannot help but be foolish. That's how she describes him. It's his nature, in other words. Listen, this is who my husband is. This is who he's always been. I'm pretty sure he's never going to change, but I love him. How? Well, we're going to go on. We might be able to answer that question. She humbly refers to herself six times as David's servant. That's amazing. Now, listen, ladies, I'm going to tell you, this: don't go around. I don't think this is really what God is wanting you to do from this story. Don't go around and go up to men going, how can I serve you? I am your servant. I am your humble servant. You are my Lord. What, do you, what is your wish for today? I don't think that's a healthy thing to do. I don't think that's really what God's asking you to do. But he is asking ladies and men to serve, to humble, to have the actual disposition that says, I'm your servant. You don't exist on this planet to serve me. I really exist to serve you. Can, it, can you imagine what an amazing church cornerstone would be if every single person from me to everybody really understood that my greatest ambition is to serve you? Now let me tell you something. And I'm putting me in the, uh, in the category here. There are very, very, very few of us that truly live a life of servanthood. And that is the goal of the gospel, Philippians 2. That we would love 
that we would lie low to the ground, which is what humility means, so that others can rise higher, that they can get the attention, that we can blend into the background, that we can serve, that we can give our strength, that we can love by displaying it behind the scenes. That's an amazing call, and when the gospel helps me live that way, it's the most purely exhilarating, joyful time in my life. Every single time when God cultivates servanthood in Tim Ackley, it is the best time in my life. But I struggle just like everybody. She humbly refers herself six times as David's servant. She calls him Lord 14 times in this passage. She lovingly pleads for the life of her husband, those in her household as well. She bravely encourages David, don't take revenge. Let God handle what takes place. Can you imagine this woman on her knees to the king of Israel, anointed by God, saying, David, basically, what are you doing? You better stop yourself now or there's going to be repercussions in your life. That's really the gist of what Abigail is saying. What incredible courage. She courageously reminds him to fight the Lord's battles, not those who insult him. By the way, later on in David's life, I think he's going to have learned this from Abigail. Because there's going to be somebody that begins to pelt him with rocks as he is fleeing from his own son Absalom who commits a coup and takes over Jerusalem. He's fleeing for his life. There's a wicked guy throwing rocks at him, hurling epithets, hurling swear words at him, calling him all kinds of names. And one of his own mighty men says, David, should I go down there and kill him? And David said, no, for maybe this man is being used by the Lord. You know, I think he learned how to do that then from this experience now. And I think he learned it from, from Abigail. I think she taught him this. She brilliantly, verse 29, reminds David that God will deal with his enemies. And look what she does. This is her brilliance. She cites the very word which refers to the weapon that he used, the sling, to defeat Goliath. There's a bit of a double entendre in this. She knows what she's doing. She's incredibly discerning. Her words carry power. She calls David to trust in God's protection from his enemies. She advises him to let God work out the plans to install him into the kingdom. Don't do it on your own effort. And what was David's response to this incredibly wise woman? We'll look at verse 33. He says to her, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own Hand. Now, when somebody in the Old Testament says blessed, that's a covenantal term of recognition that God is the one really at work. He's really saying God is using you to impact me. That's powerful. Now, you know, there's a little principle we can get from this. I hope you can hear this. I think for some of us, I'm afraid it's going to kind of go over our heads, not because it's difficult to understand. It's just experientially derived. You have to know this through experience. Me just telling you this isn't going to really always work, but at least let me give you the principle, and it's very simple. Wise discretion can actually keep somebody you love from sinning. 
I want you to hear that again. Wise discretion in our lives can actually help keep somebody you love from sinning. How well do you take truth and combine it with love and move towards them without apology? That's discretion. That's Abigail. That's the power that she had in David. Now watch what happens when she returns to her bad marriage to Nabal. Her foolish husband's happy with all of his new money. He's holding a feast. He is absolutely drunk. Literally. The next day after his hangover is gone, by the way, Abigail was pretty smart by not telling him what she did while he was drunk. Who knows what he would have done. She waits till the next day his hangover is gone. She tells him what she did in averting his death and his destruction. And the news shocks him. He suffers what the Bible seems to be clearly saying, a heart attack. He languishes in a coma for 10 days. And then the Bible says God very intentionally, very deliberately, as his judgment fell, struck a blow and ended Nabal's life. Now, ladies, listen, you could tease something out. Not just ladies, for men as well. You let the Lord fight your battles. Now, don't take the obvious inference that he's going to kill your deadbeat husband. That's really not the goal here. I wouldn't want my wife to think that. Let the Lord fight your battles. Men, let the Lord fight your battles. Entrust people to God, even those who mistreat you, bosses, co-workers, teachers, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, entrust them to the Lord. Let the Lord fight your battles. What a story. What a wonderful woman. We haven't even yet gotten to the greatest contribution of Abigail's life in the Bible. And i got to kind of hurry it up a little bit. There's a principle in Bible study that goes like this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So all through the Old Testament, you can see the hints of the gospel as it's moving us, drawing us forward to when Jesus would come and when he would live on earth and give his life on that cross, be resurrected, and ascend back to his Father, making salvation complete. All of these hints of that are in the Old Testament. We get to see them. They foreshadow this. Let me, let me put it this way. Abigail and Nabal and David foreshadow the greatest event in human history. That's going to come. Let's begin with Nabal. You ready? Now, everybody, it's really, really important that we do this together. And I'm going to make a statement. You may not like it at first, but listen, I'm making it to me too. So let that help swallow the medicine a little bit. Every single person here and listening to this message at one point or another is a Nabal. He represents the one who is rejecting God, the one who is steeped full of sin, the one who has a nature contrary to God's, does not want God, irresistibly resists and defies and rebels against God. That's Nabal. He represents the person who is not a Christian, who is firmly ensconced in the world and wants nothing of God or anything of God's people. Isaiah paints it a little bit differently, but nonetheless as vividly. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, on, of us all. That him in that verse is the foreshadow to Christ. It's Jesus. 
should have been laid on us. I mean, just think about this for a moment. If you can remember back when you were a kid and a child in your family, and perhaps you had siblings, imagine you had siblings, and one of your brothers or your sisters breaks something in the home that's valuable, and you get blamed for it. The punishment falls on you, and you had nothing to do with it. Now, I kind of want you to pepper your mind with that thought for a moment as we go on. It'll come back. David pictures, David now, pictures the kindness that God has shown to each of us because he's guarding over us. He's watching over us, just like David and his men watched over Nabal's sheep and shepherds. That's called common grace theologically. By the way, every single one of us has been, at one time or another, a Nabal, but every single person here always has received common grace of God. That, by the way, I thought of it this last Wednesday, July 4th, when those storms erupted. The Bible says, Isaiah and other places, that the, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the godly and the unrighteous. I mean, God's grace falls on even the wicked, even the Nabals. For our Father in heaven makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust, Matthew 5, 45. But however, we all, like Nabal, have returned evil for good, which is verse 21 in our passage. This is what Nabal did to David. And we've all done this. Now, I want you to hit, um, we're not yet done with Nabal, and, I, and this is part of the difficulty of swallowing this medicine. You ready? Can you just swallow a little bit more? One more tug down your spiritual throat. You ready? Just listen to this. Nabal, just like each of us in our sin, oh, this is hard to hear, have earned the sentence of death for our crimes. Listen, every single Nabal, every single sinner, which is every single human, is on death row. Rightfully, justly, because we've committed treason against the creator, the rightful sovereign God. We have said, whom Romans says he's made himself clear through our conscience, through creation. We've said, no, I'm going to suppress that truth. I don't want God telling me what to do. I want to tell myself what to do. I want to live on the throne. I want to commandeer my life and command everyone around me. That's every single human being. We've all sinned terribly against the king of all kings, God himself. And David's wrath that was coming against Nabal stands and foreshadows the wrath of God that was certain for every single one of us. And thank God for this wonder woman, Abigail, who stepped between David's wrath and her foolish husband, who was bound up in foolishness, And as she bows before David, she says, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. That is us as well. For God loved us while we were yet sinners. We were at enmity with him, conflict, war with him, and he loved us. I mean, can you not hear Jesus on the cross praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is what Abigail was saying. David, he does not know what he does. This is just woven into his nature. 
She's such a picture of a praying saint pleading for someone who truly deserved punishment. She stood before David in the place of her husband and invited David, let your wrath fall on me. Let the guilt be on me. Can you imagine the courage of this woman who now foreshadows Jesus? Did you ever know that a woman could foreshadow the Son of God? Wait till the end of this message. Almost there. She stood before David in the place of her husband and said, let your wrath fall on me. And Jesus did no less and actually much more. He himself, Peter said, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. She came to David on a donkey on a mission of peace. Jesus would come into the city of David on a donkey to make peace between God and humanity. She lifts up David as her Lord. She, his servant, even as Jesus would say, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. She's amazing. She was married to an unloving, foolish man. Yet she was faithful to him her whole marriage. Peter wrote of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when Nabal had deceit found all through his life. How easy, listen, just think for a moment, how easy would it have been for Abigail just to simply step aside and let David's wrath deal with this miserable marriage? She'd be free but instead she intercedes for him. She saves his life from David. And God took matters into his own hands. Listen, I'm going to tell you something in marriage difficulties. And I'm not talking about abusive marriages. I'm talking about just rotten, difficult marriages. Whether justice will be seen in this life or in glory. Listen, God's will is that justice will be done. His justice is always going to be done. It may not be done in this life. Do you have the perseverance to trust God, even if that justice is going to be delivered in the next life, in eternity? Abigail showed grace to her husband. She did not take matters into her own hands to, to rid herself of her husband. She trusted in God. She possessed great wisdom, great humility, great faith, and God supremely Blessed her. You know what? David was amazed by her himself. You know, his wife Micah had just been taken away from him by Saul, given to another man. You know that had to leave an ache. He loved Micah so much. Well, look what happens. David hears what Nabal, what happened to Nabal, that he had died, and he sends for Abigail, and basically that's the Bible's way of him saying he got down on his knee and said, Hey, would you marry me? You're amazing. I would love to have you for my wife. Now, the way I just phrased that was possibly the most unromantic way ever. But what did Abigail do? Verse 42, she hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. You know, certainly she's an inspiration to all Christian women, but I'm going to tell you, she's much more. She is an example for every single one of us. 
one who will not let circumstances define her or what she does, but instead, despite them, does what is pleasing to the Lord. Do you let circumstances define you? Or are you filled with discernment and beauty? Are you like Abigail? As we close, can I encourage you to think on this Wonder Woman throughout this week. Read through this passage again, 1 Samuel 25. Let the Lord bring and apply parts of it that I did not. And watch what her example can do even in your own life as it so clearly foreshadows Jesus Christ himself. Amen?